Okay, I'm going to begin our study on the Westminster Confession of Faith um, today with two elements, or actually three. First, I'm going to give you a historical introduction and context to the, West, the formulation of the Confession of Faith. I will then tell you uh, how it came to be, how the construct of the and the penmanship of the Confession of Faith came, to, came about, and then we will discuss uh, its application to our, our lives, so how it continues to be not just relevant, but critical as a document, um, as a record of our faith, uh, the doctrines of our faith. <coughs> so we'll, we'll go into those things. And before we go into that, uh, I'm going to pray and then ask you a couple questions, have a look back and forth, and we'll go into it. Uh, maybe later in future times we can set up maybe desks so you can have like a desk to write on, but for now, let's bear with uh, what we've got. Anyways, let me pray, and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. Um, it's been you know, many, many hours of reading and study that have brought forth uh, some of these things that I hope to share with um, your flock and your people. Uh, whether these things are new to them or uh, perhaps just healthy reminder, I pray that it would be helpful and would assist them in understanding uh, the statements of faith, understanding what we believe, understanding what we ought to believe, and why we believe what we believe. So we uh, ask for your guidance and your inspiration this time. All this pray in your name. Anyways. Okay, let me ask a question to begin. How many of you have studied any confession of faith? Like any, Westminster or anything else? Okay. Confident hands up. Okay, so Corey, what did you study? Uh, a bit of, like a little bit of everything, just to kind of like understand it more. Sure. Like Westminster, Augsburg. Uh-huh. Uh, what else is there? The, the other one. Uh, I forgot what it's called, but yeah. Okay. He Heidelberg. Heidelberg Confession of Faith. Yeah. Augsburg. So these terms might may or may Longer, not be familiar, shorter, yeah. familiar to some of you. Uh, Ivy. Only the Westminster. Westminster. Have you fully read and studied it? or? Uh, no, I, I'm at the beginning. The beginning of it. Anyone else? Studied? Who has read? A Confession of Faith and or the Westminster Confession of Faith, like fully, all 33 chapters of this particular Confession of Faith or any other. Okay, this is per this is not unusual. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's not unusual. Um, <laughs> who knows what the Westminster Confession of Faith is? Who has an idea of what it is? What is it? What it's what is its purpose? Why ought we learn? about the Westminster Confession of Faith? Anyone? Yes? Summarizes what we believe. Summarizes what we believe, yes. It's, doctrine, it's chapters, 30 chapters of doctrines of faith. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that. Anything else? Anyone else? Okay. Um, has anyone... Um, have you, like, kind of loosely heard about confessions? Like you've, other than me, other than our church, other than the context you're in here. Any other church you've been to or uh, people around you, have you heard of Confessions of Faith or an appeal to it and or anything like that? Again, not unusual, Unfor unfortunate, but not unusual. Um, about two, two years ago, um, I went on uh, a bit of a study. So this is like beginning of COVID, I guess. Uh, because I had so much time on my hands, <laughs> uh, I started uh, really diving deeper into uh, denominational beliefs. So once I understood my 
sort of personal convictions to lie in the reform tradition. As you know, the reform tradition is con constructed by many different sub-denominations, and one of them being our own church is Presbyterian. I wonder, what's the difference? What are the differences? Why do they exist? Where do these root from? So I'm a bit of a history buff, so I went into a deep dive into this stuff. And um, the Westminster Confession of Faith is something that I landed on. I knew of. I never had a full in-depth study of it. So what I'm about to present to you for the next, I would say it's going to take us till the end of the year, um, is about two years of study. Uh, it's not to say that it's extraordinary or that it will be great. It probably doesn't do justice to the confessions, but I will do my best to convey uh, and explain to you uh, the statements found in this Confession of Faith, and uh, hopefully it will enlighten you and help you in your journey in understanding the Christian faith as understood by Presbyterians. Okay, so here's where the note-taking begins. Let me give you some historical context. Anyone hate history? Anyone not care about history? Great. This is time where you can doze off and uh, not listen, because <laughs> uh, a lot of people don't like this part. Let me take you back to 17th century, again, 17th meaning the 1600s, of uh, England and Scotland. All right. Uh, anyone not know where those countries are? Southern British Isles. Anyways, uh, it is, this particular Westminster Confession of Faith was written during this time in uh, England and Scotland, mainly England, written in time of confusion and uh, political conflict and strife. So there was what was called the uh, First Civil War of England happened at this time, as well as um, like during the time of King James I, of course, a war with Spain, uh, leaking into the reign of King Charles I, and you can look in the history of that. Uh, basically, there was political strife, both external and internal. The Confessions is a what we define as a sensible, articulate, and calming uh, document for the Christian believer. The Confession is, com is comforting in its expression of the Gospel and its proclamation on Christian truths, uh, especially in knowledge of the fact that it was written during a time of political strife. So here's all this chaos going on. Imagine like Ukrainian Christians going, okay, let's gather together and write like something like a document that explains what we believe because you know we may die and we want to pass this on to future Christians, etc. Right? So there's all this it's not as bad as like what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but there was strife uh, on the British Isle, and um, unfortunately, that was the reality. And during this time, we have um, the writing of the Confessions. Scotland and England were separate kingdoms at the time. As you know now, uh, the Commonwealth and British history and all that stuff, if you do or do not know, um, Britain is a thing, right? And then it's constructed of <laughs> Wales, England, Ireland, Northern and Southern, and then Scotland, right? And uh, these were separate kingdoms at the time, but they shared one monarchy. So it's kind of like Canada. We have Elizabeth II on our coins and our money. Um, she is our monarch, right? And then we have the Governor General representative of the Queen here in Canada. Uh, so we share a monarchy like the Commonwealth does, but they're separate political entities, so separate kingdoms. Uh, later on, about 100 years later, after the Confessions, the Treaty of Union will occur. Uh, in which uh, it's about a century away from the Confessions, uh, where the sharing of monarchy births a closer relationship, union between both nations and even the churches. Now, at this point in time in history, uh, Roman Catholicism is sort of on the downfall in parts of Europe because of the Reformation. 
if you do not know Reformation history and what happened in Europe with the Reformation, um, that's a separate lecture, that's a separate study. But just know that there is something called a Reformation happening. In other words, Protestants are protesting against the Catholic Church and leaving it in multiple countries across Europe. So famously, John Calvin in France, Martin Luther in Germany, uh, Ulrich Zwingli in Northern Africa, etc., 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 right? Um, so you have multiple people. In Scotland, the main guy was a guy named John Knox. So if you know Knox Seminary at UFT, or you know Knox Presbyterian Church downtown in Toronto, it's named after this guy. John Knox is a Scottish reformer. He reformed Scotland. And uh, he is the one who birthed uh, the Presbyterian denomination of the Church of Scotland. Right? So the denomination was birthed out of this man's teachings. And he employed in Scotland what would be called, what I call the regulative principle. Uh, if you know the regulative principle, all of Christian practice, both in worship and in life, is regulated by the principal word of God. So God's word, the Bible, regulates everything that you do as a Christian, both in the church and outside of it. And so this was sort of the, um, the heart of the Reformation in Scotland. Whereas in England, the Reformation was born famously from, uh, it is pretty famous, I don't know if you know this story, but the Anglican church, right? The Anglican literally means like the Anglo-Saxons, the English people, the English church of England, like, Anglican Church was birthed out of King Henry VIII's desire, uh, two desires, one, to have a son. His wife could not bear him a son, so instead of, you know, just sticking it through and trying to have a son through this first wife, he wanted to divorce her and marry another woman and have a child through her. Problem is, the Roman Catholic Church would not allow that, so that was against the Roman Catholic practice, and so he reformed, he protested from uh, the Roman Catholic church denied the papacy which is the pope and basically created the anglican church where he was the head he became the pope essentially uh, the monarch the king of england and he birthed the anglican church uh, as we know it today now of course today uh, there's a little bit difference in terms of how they view that but anyways that's how the reformation occurred in england out of this one crazy king's desire to marry another woman and have a son right so unfortunate like beginning but anyways the reason I tell you this is because you can see in Scotland the Reformation is birthed out of desire to be biblical, and in England the Reformation's desire is birthed out of desire to give birth to a son, right, um, and to divorce a uh, particular. So you can see like how different the context in which the Reformation's happened, um, and you can imagine then, like how do you think the Church of Scotland differed from the Church of England, right? One's birthed out of biblical. Like a desire to be biblical, and one's desire, uh, one comes out of a different reason, right? So you have two different takes on it. One is we don't want to obey the Roman Catholic Church anymore, and it's a rebellion. In the other case, it's similar, similar beginnings, but they want to be biblical, right? So you can you can understand the difference there. Now, under the rule of King Charles the First, is when the Westminster Assembly. I will define that later. Convened, gathered. And the events around his reign is what ushered uh, the pen penning of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So it's under King Charles I. His reign was from 1625 to 1649. Um, he was involved, of course, as I told you earlier, a war with Spain, um, civil war, and it broke the country financially. So he was funding the war and he was running out of money. 
By this time, the Puritan movement, again, the Puritans is another whole lecture, but the Puritans are basically like really reformed Englishmen who wanted to be biblical, and they saw that the English church was corrupt, and they were sort of like, do you know Pilgrim's Progress, like John Bunyan? Or, you know, like uh, J.C. Ryle, Holiness, John Owen. These kind of guys are all Puritans. So they were English men who wanted to be truly biblical. And uh, during this time, the Puritan movement had grown uh, so much so that it had successfully taught and implemented the Christian community to be active participants in political and governmental positions. So you had a lot of government officials in the parliament. At this point in Eng England's history, there is a parliament and a monarchy. Uh, there were very, very active leaders within that parliament who were reformed Puritan Christians. Now, throughout his reign, Charles' reign, from 1625 to 1649, Charles made four parliamentary requests to the, to the Parliament of England, and all financially driven because, again, he was running out of funds from being in war. And he, what he was hoping to do was to secure taxation against, you know, taxation of his people to get more income to finance the political agenda of the country, meaning war. It is in this last, this fourth and last petition in which the parliament secured the adoption, so they made a deal, so we'll give you the funds and the taxation allowance uh, on the grounds that we are allowed to secure an adoption of Presbyterian polity, that means political structure, so church structure that's Presbyterian, um, both in Scotland and in England. In England, there would be a three-year opportunity, a three-year window in which uh, the reformers would have a chance to implement the uh, Presbyterian system. Uh, and at the time, it was mainly Anglican. Now, if you know anything about the Anglican Church, it is by structure, polity, right? So Presbyterians are named after its political system, Presbyterian. So how a Presbyterian church works is we are part of a larger network called a Presbytery. So, for example, we are, this church in the Korean side is part of KPCA. The KPCA is a larger body that governs all of the churches within its region. So we're part of the Eastern Canada uh, KPCA denomination. So we are part of about, I think it's 87 churches across Eastern Canada. And so what happens is this governing body of pastors, elders, um, basically um, make sure that each of its entities, each of its churches are operating on the same theological grounds, right? And so when there's an issue, uh, the Presbyterian can kick in. And so the pastor is under the umbrella of the denomination. And I, if I was a, an ordained minister under the KPCA, I would fall under that authority, if that makes <coughs> sense, okay? Compared to uh, two others, so I'll start with Congregationalists. Uh, famously, the Baptists are Congregationalists. So what Baptists will do is, each church is its own political entity. So if we were a Baptist church, we would elect from among us who our pastor would be. Okay, so unlike the Presbytery, the Presbytery hires and assigns pastors to the church, and the pastor is under the governance of the Presbytery regionally, whereas Congregationalist churches, like Baptist churches, each church comes up with its own political system. So they would assign elders, deacons, etc. within its own congregation. They would recognize and say, oh, this person has the gift of teaching. So clearly, you know, if they have the calling, they should be preaching. And they'll have what's called teaching elders or preaching elders, right? Um, or then they'll have ruling elders. They'll have other deacons in other different positions. And each church individually would run its own political system within itself, right? Um, 
but they would be part of a network of Baptist churches, but they, each church would not hold the other church accountable for doing things differently. So if you go from Baptist church to Baptist church to Baptist church, you will find there are subtle differences in practice and methodology and ideology and philosophy. Whereas the Presbyterian system is trying to maintain holistic unity across by regional governance. And then the third is the Episcopalian system. So this is the Catholic system, and this is the same system that the Anglican Church adopted. And the Episcopalian system assigns bishops to regions. So you've heard of cardinals who are like uh, national leaders, and then you have like bishops who are regional leaders. And so if you, you know, um, if you talk to like Catholics today, they still do this. They divide the globe by regions, and then there will be like a bishop or something. So St. Augustine, famously the bishop of Hippo. I love the Bishop of Hippo. If you're going to be a bishop, you might as well be the Bishop of Hippo, right? Um, or the Bishop of Canterbury. You know, you'll probably hear these types of things. The Pope is the Bishop of Rome. Right? So he is the governing uh, person of Rome, and Rome is the so-called, like, you know, the highest level governance in the Catholic Church. And so whoever is the Bishop of Rome is the entire Pope of the Roman Catholic uh, tradition, right? Uh, the Episcopalian system was adopted by the Anglicans. So the Anglicans also have bishops. And they will run, like for example, there will be an Anglican bishop of North Toronto. And that person, whoever that person is, will govern the churches within that region. Does that make sense? Um, and so that's how the system worked. So the difference is, it's not a governing body, uh, but it's rather, uh, it's a Catholic system where everything's regionally divided, and there's a singular person in charge of that region, whereas Presbyterian system has a body governing a region, right? Just to hold each other accountable. Uh, basically, Presbyterians, what they feared was having a single voice governing everyone, because then it becomes tyrannical, is what they experienced. Uh, that's a very like shallow sort of explanation, but if you are interested, you can go in depth on that. But anyways, they were predominantly Episcopalian in England. And uh, the Scottish reformers and the English reformers were interested in making it Presbyterian because what they saw was tyranny in the singular voice authority. So it's in the midst of this chaos, both politically and spiritually in England, that the Westminster Assembly gathered. And they gathered for 10 years, from 1643 to 1653. And they penned the documents we call, uh, this is a term you must learn, the Westminster Standards. So what are the standards? It is the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the document we will study. It is also the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And a catechism is basically like a category, uh, it's a way of uh, learning. That is, catechization is basically to say that you learn something through the process of question and answer. So you know how we do the Shorter Catechism during service? It's a question and answer format, why? It's a simplified teaching of a complex doctrine. And so it, it's designed so that even children could memorize it. Now you're reading and going, there's no way children memorize this. But in early churches, <laughs> before ours, children would memorize the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism. They would recite it. Right? It was just constantly preached, or constantly taught. Uh, and then there's the Westminster Larger Catechism. That's the third document. And then there's two other things. The Directory of Public Worship. And then finally, the Form of Church Government. And they're self-explanatory in terms of what they do. The director of public worship, so it governs liturgy. And then the form of church government uh, gives you a document on the political side of things. 
Okay. Any questions about the history of the Confession of Faith? I'm sure you're sitting there going, what just happened? <laughs> right? Which is fine. That's fine. This is all forgettable stuff. I just thought it would be interesting for you to know. What's more important is what's follow what follows. Do not forget this stuff. Right? This is when you want to wake up him. So, things to note. The Westminster Assembly. <laughs> Guess what the Westminster Assembly is named after? Why do you think it's called Westminster? <laughs> yes, anyone? The Nicene Creed. All these things. Yeah. The Paris Agreement. Like, why are they called these things? It's named after the? The location, the location right? Anyone know where Westminster is? UK. England. Good guess. Yes, it's in England, in the UK, yeah. Um, it's close to London. Well, it's in London. And it was in a church you can go today. So if you ever go to London, England, go to this church. It's called the Westminster Abbey. Okay, Westminster Abbey. It's a church located in, guess what, Westminster in uh, part of London, England. It was written by what we call the Westminster Divines. Uh, now, the name might throw you off, but it's a, it's a lowercase d. It's not a uppercase D. In other words, this is not divine people. These are not holy people or God people, okay? Uh, the divines were a group of about 120 men known as the divines, which simply means theologians. So back then we called theologians divines. It's old English, okay? These are theologians, uh, and some members of the English parliament were part of the Westminster Assembly. So they would gather in this church at the Abbey, Westminster Abbey, and they would have these council meetings. And these men were commissioned by the government uh, and by the monarchy to do one singular task. Restructure the English church. Restructure the English church. So this assembly, heavily, heavily influenced by English Puritanism, the Puritans as I mentioned earlier, was reformed in its tradition and its belief. Reformed basically means this. Uh, it's a... It's an adherence to Calvin's teachings according to the Institutes of the Christian Religion written by John Calvin. If you don't know that book, or if you don't know who John Calvin is, just Google it, <laughs> okay? That's another lecture all on itself. Uh, but anyways, the Reformed traditions uh, were a heavy part of this group, uh, meaning they were all Calvinists, and they were predominantly Presbyterian in their church polity. However, there are some of the divines who were Congregationalists, let's just call them Baptists, and they actually eventually end up separating, and although they adhere to the dogmatic statements of faith made in the Westminster Confession of Faith that they contributed towards, they held to a different political uh, ideology when it came to church structure. So they actually end up separating, just a handful of them, and uh, they start, you know, essentially a Congregationalist English church in England. Just so you know that. Now from this confession, we have two things birthed. Um, two important documents, the shorter and the larger catechisms. Again, they're just meant to understand and memorize the teachings of the confessions of faith. So learning the confessions of faith comes first, and then you can get into the catechisms. The reason we go through the shorter catechism on, on Sundays during service is A, because it's liturgical. It was used, it was designed to be used in liturgy. Secondly, it, uh, it, I just want to introduce you to the content of it, right? Because a lot of us haven't been taught that kind of stuff. So I just wanted to introduce you 
and I thought it'd be helpful. So just be mindful of that. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith has 33 chapters that outline all facets of faith and practice in the Christian life. R.C. Sproul famously says, one of the most important confessions of faith ever penned. So, I mean, if you don't take my word for it, take his word for it. Let me read you a couple excerpts in terms of uh, our authors here. So let me read you from Sproul. This is what he wrote. Though by no means a political document, the confession was forged in the midst of political turmoil in England in the 17th century. England's Reformation did not have the most auspicious beginning, uh, perhaps sparked less by theological conviction and more by Henry VIII's desire for a male heir, and thus his split with the Roman Catholic Church over his freedom to divorce. From there, things only got worse, as a series of monarchs saw England flip from Protestant to Catholic back again. Eventually, this gave rise to an unhappy medium, which in turn sparked the rise of the Puritan movement, the Puritans were committed Protestants who wanted to see the church purged of any influence from the Roman Catholic Church. The end result was a well-balanced consensus document. There were heated debates on sundry issues, most notably church government. There was, however, a level of clarity and precision. And that's going to be two important things. The Confession of Faith's uh, design is to be clear and precise. That the pastors and theologians who composed the document, known as the Vines, could be thankful for. Um, this exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith is not written in a technical academic way, but is designed to be accessible to lay readers, as is the confession itself. The second thing I want to read you is uh, from our author, Chad Van Dixworm, who's going to be the main guy who walks us through this. Uh, he has three reasons why, uh, three simple statements as to why the confessions are uh, very important. The first, he writes, lies in the coherence and clarity. Again, just the clarity and the precision of its carefully focused chapters, each of them organized around a major doctrinal or biblical theme. Second, the second distinguishing feature of this confession is its use as a guide to the readers of the Bible. When you read the confessions, they're written in uh, redemptive historical order. So when you understand the confessions and then you read scripture, you will understand how redemptive history unfolds in the person of Jesus Christ. And then the third major advantage of the confessions is that it deals not only with fundamental doctrines that are obvious, but also with some fundamental doctrines that are difficult. Uh, a doctrine is a statement of faith, and we'll get there. And when we talk about the doctrine of God, when we talk about the doctrine of man, doctrine of sin, that's when we'll have more interaction. Today, you're just kind of listening, but in later lectures, I want to have a lot more interaction in terms of like, what do you believe about these things? What have you come to believe about these things? Why do you believe what you believe? And uh, what does the confession say? How does it challenge your thought process? Um, and why is the specificity so important? And I'll tell you why it's important. It's because um, if you talk to 100 Christians and you ask them, who is Jesus Christ? You might get a handful of answers. And that's problematic. It's problematic because that's not true, right? Uh, there should be a singular response to these things from the church. And the reason we don't have a singular response is because today in the church, especially in North America, we've grown accustomed to being very shallow in our understanding of what we believe and basically lacking in the knowledge to articulate what we believe precisely to those who ask those questions. One of the most difficult questions I was asked uh, in my university years as a Christian was, uh, what is the gospel? Like this old man, this senior uh, 
we our church we used our youth group we used to go out and help like nursing homes and nursing homes we used to like sing songs and do stuff and I was talking to this old man he had about like two and a half weeks to live and then I was talking to him about oh I'm a Christian and da 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 right and he was like okay what do Christians believe what is the gospel and man I had no like I had such trouble like articulating that and I have no idea why or if I ask you something simple like uh, what is worship like what is your answer to that right if I told you all right now to write down the, the the answer to this question what is the glory of God what does it mean when the scripture talks about the glory of God what does it mean to bring glory to God if I told you to write that down like, what would what would be your answer right? it's problematic that we don't have a singular answer to these things across the church it's problematic because we haven't taught you to do those things and that's of course on our end as pastors uh, so at least here you know 20-30 of us I hope that in our study of the Confession of Faith, we can fix that. Okay? Yeah, today's pretty short teaching. But uh, any, any questions on the confessions of faith, or Confession of Faith? Or Confessing the Faith, the book itself? Any questions, comments? So, Westminster. 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 Yes. Nice try, though. Is it, like, strictly location? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just like the, like the Nicene Creed was written in Nicaea. There are all of these things, these documents, these important documents historically, uh, they are just named after where they were like, written and composed. Like you famously probably, like nowadays with like, climate change issues, like the Paris Treaty, right? That's just because the G20 gathered in Paris and decided let's cut climate stuff, right? Um, yeah. Anyone else? Confession of faith? Yes. Uh, there is a difference between confession and creed. Yes. Um, only in the sense that the confession is a more, I would say, specific document. Like, it's a document that has a lot, a lot more specificity to it. You will see that every single uh, chapter we look at and each doctrine we look at, you'll see an immense amount of scriptural, back, uh, like scriptural reference to back up what they're saying. And every single word was debated. So the articulation of every <laughs> sentence in the Confession of Faith, 120 dudes were in a room going, I don't think we should use that word, right? Or we should use that word. No, 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 you know, it was just... And no one is saying that this was like Holy Spirit-inspired like scripture. No one is saying that. The Confession of Faith does not supersede the authority of scripture. It is just the confession is designed to simply confess what scripture is teaching, Right? Uh, so when it gets into things like justification, you will see a very specific articulation of justification uh, that might, you know, be like, at first be like, whoa, like, I don't understand, and then we'll get into the scripture of it. A creed is designed a lot like catechisms to simply be, like the Apostles' Creed, a memorized uh, articulation, like a simplified memorized articulation of something we believe. Yeah, I don't expect you to memorize the Westminster <laughs> Confession of Faith and then use that as a creed for your life, right? So the Apostles' Creed, some other creeds that do exist uh, in, the, in the traditions uh, would be designed more for shorter memorization purposes. Yeah. Apostles' Creed, though, it can be, is used by, I believe, other denominations as well, like Arminians and yes. other people, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, yeah. But it's, uh, it, is, it is heavily part of liturgy. Uh, so the creeds exist primarily for that purpose, like, as well as the catechisms. 
to be used in liturgical purposes, the worship of God. I don't think I would ever, I don't know, I want to say ever, but I don't think I would, you know, go through a statement of the confession of faith during liturgy, like during worship. It's probably something I would rather do supplementary to worship and in your life to teach you what you believe, as we're doing now. But I would use the catechisms, like the shorter catechism, to be part of the liturgical service. Liturgy, by the way, just means like service, order of service. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Are we going chapter by chapter? Good question. So each week, we're going to spend a maximum time of 45 minutes. Uh, and then the last 15 minutes will just be Q&A, uh, if needed. right? Um, so we're not going to be constrained to, like, we must finish this chapter this week. But more so, I'm just going to go by time. I think it's more important that you get the concise understanding and a thorough understanding than it is to just simply go through them for the sake of going through them. Uh, so feel free to read ahead. If you have this book or if you somehow obtained an illegal copy of the PDF, um, <laughs> then uh, I don't condone that. But anyways, if you have, uh, just read ahead if you want and write down questions, comments, thoughts, anything you like. Uh, I will be sending and posting on our church Facebook page the PDF of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which brings me to a couple things. I have giveaways. So today, if you plan on attending our study on this stuff, and uh, even if you don't, if, even if you're just a guest here and you're just checking it out, this we'd like to give you for free. Um, so this is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Bring this on Sundays, and you can just follow along with what we do during service. And it's just a little handbook. I know you could just have it on your phone and whatever, but if you're a person who likes to have a little bit of analog in your life, this is, uh, I think, something easy to carry around. Uh, just have in your back pocket, you know, whatever. Uh, this is produced by Banner of Truth. And, yeah, it's really, it's a nice little just booklet to carry around. Whereas this will be a prize. So this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's leather-bound. It's, like, beautiful. Um... So it's just like a little handbook, genuine leather covers, and this will be given to the elites of this class. Um, so each week, I will have some kind of quiz. So for example, next week, we'll be looking at chapter one. <laughs> Thoroughly study chapter one. And when I give a quiz, whoever gets it, you can have it, right? I think it's, uh, I think it's just like a nice little, it's like embossed with the Westminster Confession logo and everything. If you don't want it, you don't have to have it. But we only have about 15 of these, so I can't give one to everybody. Uh, I literally went to the table. I, I, I like just took all of them. This old man was like looking at it. He's like, oh, and I'm like, sorry, can I have that? <laughs> I just took all of them, like, including the display guy. Like, I just bought them all. Uh, and I wanted to buy more, but they ran out. Um, How much is this? This is uh, originally 20 US dollars, but I got it for 10. Um, so, I don't plan to sell it to you, but I do want you to earn it uh, if you want it. Right? Can you do one giveaway today? Like, just uh... Okay, recite the first chapter of the Convention of Faith. What's the first statement? For God so loved the world, I give it <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you're out. That's one. That's the first thing you gotta about the book. Sorry? How do we study chapter one? We don't know. Uh, the chapter one's in here. Uh, in terms of the book, the book is a commentary on this. Oh, so yeah. that actually is... This is, is the that's actual the Confession summary. of Faith. Yeah, that's actually that. what it is. So this is the... So I'll give you a PDF of the Confession of Faith, and you can have it electronically so as reference. Uh, I'll give you both the modern English and the old English. 
Uh, and then this is just a handbook copy of it. It feels like the Bible. I would love to give this to those who really want to take this seriously, right? And just have this in your back pocket. Uh, some of your Bibles will actually have, um, some versions of Scripture actually have the catechisms and or standards or the Confession of Faith in it. So you might be able to find a Bible with that. But anyways, I know it's kind of like cheesy, like do I really want this little leather booklet thing? But I think it's cool. It looks cool. It's embossed. So I want it. Yeah. I thought if I make it exclusive, people would care more. So, um, I don't want the paperback. <laughs> so anyways, uh, so we'll give, out, we'll give a few of these out each week. And uh, I'll let you know ahead of time before Sunday like what the questions will be and you can study it and whatnot. And then we'll just give them out as prizes. So, yeah, I just wanted to give that as a gift for anyone that really takes this stuff seriously. So we'll start with chapter one next week. And that's it. Any questions? Comments? Cool. I'm going to pass this around. You guys can just take one. Mikey, maybe you can help. Distribute. Just the paperback, Like the right? disciples. Yeah. one giveaway today so without looking at your notes oh now now you're all thinking right <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe i'll do a giveaway today this is actually okay i'll give that way that way people have like a hands-on they're like oh i want that right okay without looking at your notes and you know honor system here what year was a confession of faith penned? Ivy. 1643 to 1653. Right, here we go. Uh, <laughs> no, that's wrong. He. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's he asking? You say year? That's a good range. Yeah. Should we get yeah. the months and the year too? Wow. <laughs> we'll, give out, we'll give out one more. We'll give out one more. You got it uh, right away. What? <laughs> well, it's so nice. Okay. Uh, simple one. How many men? We're part of the Westminster Assembly. 120. 120. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I said it, no? You raised his hand. Yeah. Questions will get harder. Mikey remembers numbers. Mikey already remembers numbers. Yeah, if you got one, it's over. If you got one, you're out. Can they go? Can they go? I don't know if it's real leather, but it, it feels nice. Anyways. Leather bound, so it's like. You got pleather on, yeah? Don't worry, we got more coming. Let me pray. We'll end for today. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for um, just our what we're going to be enduring in together in terms of our study of the confessions. We ask our minds would be enlightened, that these truths would be uh, just permanently engraved on our hearts and our minds, uh, that we would learn, not just for the sake of learning, but that it would lead into transformed, convicted lives that are becoming more and more Christ-like. We thank you for the men who diligently wrote these things for us so we could study and express our faith truthfully to those in this world. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. That's it. So starting next week, we're getting right in chapter one. Thank you.